Our word for this morning comes from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 and verses 23 through 25. You can read along in your bulletin or in your Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And he filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants had known where the water had been drawn, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. Um, I I didn't know that last scripture was in there, so I'm going to have to rewrite my sermon in my head to fit it. Um, <laughs> gosh. I write the passage up way ahead and then I start working on a sermon I didn't really look at the pat- what I'd written up so I really only um, have going to consider the scriptures up through verse 11 today so verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 Today we will look at the first of only seven miracles that, that John records. Though Jesus did more, as we see in the other gospel writer's accounts. Which means this, that, that these miracle events that we have in John are, are packed with truth and life and direction. And John basically juices, if you will, Jesus' miracles and and of its spiritual nutrients for us in these seven miracles. So when we read um, that Jesus and his disciples have shown up at a wedding, there is no pulp or husk there. There is complex truth in John's grind. And I hope today that we will get a lot of it as we go through this passage together. And strange enough, it is Jesus with his disciples at a wedding ceremony. A happy event of joining of two lives that show us much of what it means 
for us to live in this broken world. This wedding narrative shows us that life's happiness will fail and fade. That the Lord of life is in the fail. And finally, that the Lord will transform failed happiness into joy. Fifteen years ago, December 20th, 1997, my wife Kelly and I were married at noon on a sunny 70-degree day in downtown historic Charleston, South Carolina. But it was far from perfect. Far from a perfect wedding bliss day Kelly or I wanted. And among other things that were botched and missed time was that the DJ did not show up on time. And by the time we got there for the music, many of the guests were gone and had eaten before we were able to do a very, what I would describe, unceremonious first dance. The father-daughter thing didn't happen right. It was just off. And then that DJ didn't know what song we wanted. He wasn't even the guy we hired. To this day, it just sucks, man. (laughs) And you just, you can't go back and fix your wedding day. It is one of those things where you have one shot to get it right or to live with the wrong of it the rest of your life. To run out of wine back then was a serious wedding faux pas that would go down and and mark and mar the character of the bridegroom and his bride for years to come. This happy event was about to fail. The happiness of, of the bride and the groom were about to take a hit because the wine had run out. And it tells us something about this life and even good things in this life that are designed and even called by God in nature to make us happy. That life's happiness will fade and fail. Simply put, life's pleasures will run out and life's pains will come out. And let me explain what I mean by happiness. Happiness is a subjective experience of what you're involved in or doing as being good or feeling good. Because as we will see, happiness and joy are two different things. Let me make clear. Happiness is not necessarily a moral category, though we make it one as Americans especially. It's an emotion that even someone doing the wrong thing can have as they do wrong. Happiness is how you feel and experience good as and when you believe you should feel good about something. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but life's happiness, even when it lines up to what God wants us to do, will fail us. Good according to us won't happen how and when we want, and our happiness is not safe from the world's pain. Now, we are not told by the Bible why the wine ran out. We could guess that there was poor planning, or, or, or maybe the guests were greedy, or the bridegroom's friends were the guests, you know, were greedy, or his friends were all luscious or unthoughtful and brought some of their uninvited guests too. Maybe a couple bottles fell off the back of the carriage on the way. Maybe the wine delivery guy held a case back for him and his girl to drink back at the crib. Maybe the bridegroom overshot himself. 
or undersold himself as far as his popularity. Maybe he was trying to show off and bid off more than he could true. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All we know is that according to verse 3, that the wine had run out. And with the wine running out, the guests and the happiness of the event would be next. But along with that would be the impending shame and pain from failing to do the wedding right or honoring the bride properly or being condemned as a show-off or a poor planner or someone who didn't love his woman enough or didn't love his friends enough or maybe he'd be called a drunk. But here is the point. Life's happiness will fail and fade because pleasures will run out and pain for sure is to show up and come out in this world. No matter how good a thing you might have going on, or doing, or involved in, or for all the good and happy reasons because of the sin of this world, because of brokenness and human error and nature set up against us because of the fallen sin, happiness according not only to what we can gather here, but what Jesus says himself in the Bible, runs out of pleasure and comes with pain. What does that mean for us? Marriages. Relationships. Community. Friendships. Living location. Jobs. Sexual pleasures. Childbearing. Parenting. Money substances, food and drink and good health and mental ability and emotional stability, beauty and strength and ambition, all the things we're given and put on earth and in us for our happiness and able to give us happiness is something good. The pleasure of them will run out and through them pain will actually come out. And let me emphasize, like this wedding, moral, good-intended, godly, Christianized, prayed over and for, done in the church stuff. The happiness, even in those things, will fail and fade in its pleasure and then its resultant pain. You know what? There is something more embarrassing and shameful and humiliating and heartbreaking than wine running out of a wedding. What you are going through in your life right now that you're trying to hide, that you're trying to pretend isn't there. Some of you are left feeling abandoned by God, friends, spouses, like fools for believing this or that would finally do it because what you got into and started, the life you live is no longer making you happy. But you and I need to realize that we human beings fortunately, are not alone in the fail and fade of this life. The Bible tells us here that Jesus and his disciples went to the wedding as attendees. Based on where the wedding was, most likely some local kids getting married. Maybe Jesus went to high school with them. But it was normal at such a huge event in this culture to invite all the, you know, teachers and their disciples 
And the Bible says that Jesus was there with his crew. Just his initially casual attendance there tells us something about the Lord. The Lord of life is present in our lives. Get this. God goes to weddings. He doesn't hang out in a monastery or simply sits around in, in painting poles, if you will. No, Jesus, God come in the flesh, fulfills and speaks to his purpose. He, he, he got his paper plate and got in a line with everybody else, and he speaks to his purpose and character by going to human events. Jesus is present in life and life's details, and thus puts himself in a place to be present in life's fails, in places and times when our happiness fails. It means, as we see his mother Mary seeking him out, that he is present to be reached and to listen to our pains and hurts and fears and disappointments in this life, in its fail, in its faults, in its dysfunction and malfunctions. But as this passage in the story teaches us and tells us that Jesus the Lord is just not present in life's fail, he's presiding over the fail. So Jesus' mother, wanting the host to avoid such a social disaster, does the right thing. Desperately seeks out help. And Jesus is there. Now Mary, Mary knows that her boy is no ordinary boy. He, with a crew following him and all that immaculate virgin birth, conception stuff. And at least he can have influence in a local winery or, or send some of his boys out to the corner liquor store. Or maybe she's expecting him to use some of his divine abracadabra on things. But nevertheless, he is present and she seeks him out for help. And the Bible says this in verses 3 and 4. Read with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has yet, has not yet come. Now at first glance, it may seem like he is being rude to his mama and she get popped up in his mouth just like every other son. I I don't know about popping Jesus in the mouth. I just don't think. But that would not be an accurate reading of the text. So all of you indignant mothers out there can chill on Jesus for a minute. And for the record, he is not being misogynistic by calling her woman. Now, I wouldn't recommend that in regular conversation with any of the women in your lives, but what he is saying is, yes, ma'am, or my mama, or something like that. And he's saying, what does this have to do with the reason you know that I was put in your room by the Holy Spirit and that reason was to reveal the Father and ultimately save the world by going to the cross? In other words, any action I do, Mama, publicly will have to have a divine reason to it and today is not my day to die, so I have to do it in a way that lines up with something, you know, with the timing of what I'm supposed to do before I die, so it just can't be about a magic trick. And since you asked me in front of everybody, my disciples and these servants, I have to give them and do for them what I came to do and be for them and not just do for you what you want me to do. And Mary answers rightly. Do whatever he tells you. Now, don't get it twisted. Mary does believe God will act 
and have a plan. But by doing what she did in response response to Jesus' statement, she confirms that Jesus, what? That he presides over, that he rules over, is sovereign and in control of how he acts in the presence of humanities and life's fail. Because his purposes are always those of God, who he is, and not just for our happiness, that he will do what is best. Jesus saying, as he spoke to Mary, what is he saying to us? My purposes, my plans for you, my plans for the world, my lordship is in control of fixing or not fixing your lack of happiness, not your commanding that I do it a certain way or in a certain time with a certain comfort for you, but I do all things in my time, in my way, in my knowing, in determining what is best. If I'm in something, I don't want to hear that. But remember, he's not just presiding. The Lord of life, the Lord of salvation is there, is present. When life's happiness fails and fades, we pray to the Lord Jesus who is present. We pray to the Lord who presides who is in control of our prayer request. We ask God for help, but we do not command or direct God in how and when he is going to answer. Like Mary rightly does, we leave our prayer request, like the older Christians used to say, at the altar. And then like Mary, do with it what you, Lord, have determined and designed and deemed to be. Yes, down in the middle of my nightmare, in the middle of my madness, In the middle of my shame, the Lord is going to work it out, as our blessed song says, in our favor. But like I said last week, not necessarily in your flavor. And I'm preaching all this, and I am a disappointed man a lot. God does not answer my prayers in my flavor. I get frustrated with the Lord. I want him to do it my way. I have a clear view of what needs to happen. He doesn't seem to. So when I'm talking to you, I'm preaching this, and I don't have it together, I am frustrated with the Lord a lot. Be crying, upset. Where's God? God ain't real. I do the same things. I doubt my faith. I don't want to come to church. I don't want to preach. Sometimes I feel like a hypocrite because I don't believe God sometimes because he won't do what I want. And what I want is a good thing. I want great things. I want godly things. Oh, good catch. I want things that seems like he promised to give me. More important than him getting wine and making everyone happy is what it will teach and show the disciples that day. Some of us are sitting in the middle of midnight in a dark place at the crossroads, at a breaking point, at the end of yourself, just reserved to let it be, have given up. 
Some of you are living in fear and shame, and here is the kicker. You actually believe God is present. You see him. You pray to him, and he is not answering the way you want. And trust me, I'm not saying that what you want is a bad thing. God loves marriages. I'm sure he would like for you to be married. God may, I mean, to be happy. God made community and family. What you want might be completely moral and morally legit. You and God might even want the same thing. But as far as him making you happy in it, not right now. Or maybe not in that way. Or maybe not without the pain and struggle and even uncertainty. I am not doubting your pain and your patience. But God is not going to be manipulated and twisted. He is moving and twisting our hearts and lives and even this very world. And here's a harder lesson for some of us to hear. I know it's hard for me. You know what's going on here? In this text... There are people at the wedding feast who will not get any of that best wine. There are people there who have no shame in the game. The servants that serve the wine, but who see the miracle, you know, they ain't getting no wine. You know what that tells you about our failed lack of happiness and God's presiding presence in it? The answer, hear this now. The answer or non-answer may not be about or just about you and your happiness. What if God's going to make somebody else happy and you don't get none? What if you're there just to serve it? What if you're there just to learn a lesson? I mean, the servants, maybe, I don't know if the disciples, they were guests, maybe they got some. The answer or non-answer or disappointing result might be for someone else's happiness or joy or blessing or ability to believe and get to know God get to know God better. And Jesus might determine that our loss of pleasure and control and pain is worth it for the sake of something better or different or for someone else different in his kingdom. I don't like that. I want to be up in the party. I want the best wine. I don't want to be serving it, watching what Jesus did. I don't want to learn a lesson. I want to be happy. I know how you feel. I want my way. I want the wine. I want the miracle. I don't want to learn about the miracle. I don't even want the Lord of the miracle a lot of times. Just give me the wine. Just give me happiness. That's all I want. I just want what is good and right, Lord, but you want to teach me a lesson about you. I don't want you. And the Bible tells us that his ways are not our ways. But I promise you this. The Lord will transform failed and failing happiness to joy. So Jesus decides to answer Mary's request, but not for the ultimate purpose of giving good wine to the guests or even saving faith for the host. That was coincidental. That was a side effect. That was a ripple effect of Jesus' powerful work because at the epicenter, at the focus of this miracle of turning water into wine were his disciples and those who served the wine. Look at what happens in verse 6 through 11. 
Now, there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. They're about to party. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now had become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, every miracle Jesus did, or will do, we'll see, points or pointing to something greater than itself, but no less than itself. So let me make clear, understand that Jesus is saying, by turning water into wine, that I can manipulate and control nature and turn what isn't into something, that the elements of this world and time are at my beck and call, but this miracle pointed to something more. It was done so that what? Verse 11 tells us, so that they may believe in him. But what, but what were they to believe that day? That Jesus is about making all of the parties in town have the best wine? Was Jesus simply a vintner, a winemaker? Or was he a sommelier, the person who serves and picks the best wine to match the meal and the occasion? No! He is more than just a vintner and a sommelier. He is a divine vintner and sommelier of salvation. That this miracle was about turning water into wine so that they and we and you could know that he came to take life's fail and potential ruin and transform it into joy, the joy of salvation. Now, let me let you know, these are no ordinary vessels Jesus used. And the details of what they're used for matter. These 20 or 30 gallon jars or barrels were filled with water to be used in purification rites. Or they were not to be, and then, you know, they were not to be mixed up and touched in a way that would make them lose their purity. This is where the holy water was stored. This purification was used for two reasons on opposite ends of the spectrum. Priests would use the water so that they were clean enough to enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies. They had a little wash basin that the priest would go in there. I don't know if he put it on his head, whatever. He would wash up in the wash basin with the special holy water, and then he would go behind the curtain where God's presence was into the Holy of Holies. But they were also used to purify yourself if you were to touch something deemed biblically unclean, like a dead body of a person or an animal. So, you know, you can poke nothing with a stick or something like that, or, or look at it or something like that, or that would make you unclean. The water made you clean enough, and then it took away your uncleanliness. It made you holy enough to be with God and took away your sin, your contact and commitments in and with this evil and dark world. Now, y'all smart. I hope you see what Jesus is doing here. He could have used some other kind of jar. He could have used empty wine bottles. But he chose these to let the servants and his disciples know that he came to take the fail and funk and failure of the world's sin and disappointments and do a miracle to turn it around, to transform it, 
to redeem it for salvation, that he has come to take people who are ruined and run ragged and shamed and disappointed and messed up by and messed over by this world and going to give them what they can't and wouldn't get for themselves, salvation. Not just one-time change, but a continuing and growing and wholly making relation with him only by what Jesus can and did come to do in the details and circumstances of your world. Happiness and pleasures, what we consider good will fail us and fade us because of sin. We will sell ourselves short or overplay ourselves and lose and be left hanging and others will do it to us. But Jesus comes to turn our fail into the joy of salvation, the joy of knowing that he has come so that we can have life Life in the Lord, regardless and in the face of anything and everything life has and can bring. Which means this. I want to be careful. Not be making or forcing Jesus to do what we want. But. He can. He can. And he does change your circumstances. He can, and he does, change water into wine. He can, and he does, take emptiness and disappointment and make joy out of it. He can turn nothing into wine into relief. He can do a miracle in your situation right now. But on top of that, he has come to take all that we use to make ourselves feel clean, and make ourselves feel justified, and make ourselves feel good and happy, all of which is promised to run old, or run out, or get old and fade, or stop making us clean and happy, and he replaces it with the cleansing work of his salvation. Doing good to the poor. Having a perfect marriage. Having community and friends. Being in an awesome and right church. Providing for your family. Being a good husband and father and man or mother and wife and woman. All fall short in and of themselves to make and then keep you joyful and happy. That stuff can and will fail you in this life. Jesus is calling on us to take all of those things. And say like Mary did, do what you will with this for the sake of my salvation. Understand you are not good or good enough to be without Jesus in this world and life. You are not good enough to think you know how and who God should be in your life. Let Jesus take your purification rites and replace it with the wine of the joy of his salvation. Interesting parallel that was brought to my attention by one of my study books on John. That Moses' first public miracle thing was turning water into what? Blood. And Jesus was turning water into wine. Without Jesus, because of God's law, your water or turn to blood, to pain, to judgment, 
to shame. But because Jesus came to shed his blood on the cross, the water of your life will be turned into wine, into the joy of salvation, so that those who would believe in him as Lord and Savior would not see judgment or left behind, but would see and be with God and would see and experience his glory. In our narrative today, not everyone saw God in his glory. But his disciples and the servants who saw what Jesus did, did see it. And what is funny, those who enjoyed this miracle wine were like actors on a stage, right? Of Jesus directing, writing, and producing for the audience to believe in him. I mean, they react and say all the right things for them and now us to learn, which leads me to this. Look again at verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it come from, though the servants who had, draw, who, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Back in the day, just so you know some of the history behind here, to save costs and to prevent a Mardi Gras French Quarter style from breaking out, they would serve the sweetest and most fermented wine at the beginning of the wedding week. Wedding was seven days long. And as the week progressed, they would water the wine down. Well, the maitre d', right, of the event was like not knowing what happened and tasting the wine. is like, oh my, you, you've kept the best until last. Now, he had tasted all the wine up to this point. This wine was a gold medal, right? It was a Vintner Special Reserve Sommelier show-off bottle. And Jesus is offering and promising as the divine vintner and sommelier of salvation in the life of his people a final joy. A joy that starts now, but hear this, but is yet to come right now. Our lives, right in the middle of all the mess, are being packaged and rearranged and challenged and filled and refilled by Jesus to prepare you and me for the eschaton, for God's final writing of things, for the for the end of things, for God's final glory, for God's penultimate experience for human beings. And all of life's water and feeling and poor wine have been taken and redeemed by Jesus to lead us to a joyful and fulfilling end. Simply put, in the failure and fade of your happiness and institutions and struggles, the best is yet to come. Let me say it again. Jesus is promising in this miracle that without a shadow of a doubt, you can take hope and joy in this life regardless of its weak presentation and watered down or even emptiness that the best is yet to come. I was sitting down talking to John Wells the other day. We were talking about some of the struggles going on in our church with me and him. and He was like, you know what? Why are we living for this life only? Why do we think this is it? Why do we base our happiness on what is not best yet? Why are we trying to party with the watered-down wine? You know, why are we just focusing on this now? We, we have a final hope and joy and, you know, oh, I'm not happy with this. Oh, I'm not happy anymore. I've heard that. I just, 
It's just gone. The joy and happiness is gone. That's true. That's right. Because there's a final joy that is yet to come. And if we're living for this, you are right. Give up and die now. That this is not God's best. Though good if you're in Christ, the best is yet to come. For you, I'm not just happy anymore marriages. I've heard that. I'm just not happy anymore. Just ain't there like it used to be. I remember we were dating. Man, the sex was exciting then. Man, things were better. She wanted me. You know, it's just getting old. For you, I feel alone all the time. For you, I just can't have it and won't reach my potential. For your physical and mental and emotional setbacks, for all the nostalgia of how good it was back then when we lived here or when we were in college. Me and in college, I really loved the Lord. We were really, we had good friendships and good groups. We were, we were awesome in college. We, we were up to two in the morning praying, and now I can't stay up past ten. For all that is good in it, but not good enough. The best is yet to come. You can't put your hopes and happiness of what you see and experience and even determine as happy apart from Jesus and what he is promising. He is not finished yet with you or this world. You and I have no idea when and where and how the Lord might be orchestrating and putting things back together. And it might be more than your sense of happiness you can see and decide or know right now. Put your hope in his ability to give his lasting joy for our filled happiness. Believe in him. Lay it at his feet again and again and again. Let me close with this. As I look back at this story, once again, I can't help but recognize that the servants and maybe Jesus' disciples were on the outside looking in. Looking in at the party and the happiness that Jesus' miracle and involvement was able to give and gave the guests at the party but which earthly happiness they could not drink from. As you and I stand on the outside looking in at happiness, it seems it exists in this world for others, but not for us. As we stand on the poor and servant and slave and subjected and burdened side of this world and our issues, if you stand seeing and knowing Jesus as Savior, the presence the precedence, the joy of salvation, the final joy. You might not be fully happy, but you have the best in him, and the best in and by him is yet to come. The divine vintner and sommelier of salvation stand for you and with you in this life, turning emptiness and fail and fade and fear into joy. I'm going to give you the words to a song I often use here. It's just one of my favorite. I can't get over Keith Green. The man was just amazing. Lee used by God. He wasn't happy all the time either. It says this. My eyes are dry. My faith is old. 
My heart is hard. My prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it, up, soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. For happiness fail and fade, Christ gives us the wine of his love, seeing in his shed blood. 